Last time on Montreal Sauce. That's opinion at 10 after 7 on a dark and stormy night. The inky shadows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I originally asked you, I think, earlier if you had a Kindle just because the, um, there, it just when you were describing uh, information design, um, I think their interface definitely leaves, leaves for some wanting. Like I, there's little like you can do with the things that you collect, but it, it, it is something that I find for me personally it may not be every user but easy to use and the fact that you know now when i pick up a paperback and i like i find my finger like reaching to a word i don't know to like get the definition <laughs> just yeah. click it and then get the definition but then kindle also allows you to highlight things and make notes um i just i guess i was thinking like the problem is is they don't have then the way to then extract those things that you might want later <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, that no, that's a, certainly that's and you know, and the Kindle and uh, like devices have uh, been improving in that regard. But uh, you know, again, uh, it's uh, it all depends on you know what the purpose is, and uh, you know, I think for a Kindle, I don't have statistics on this, but my sense is that there's probably. A preponderance of use of works of fiction, for example, as opposed to sure. nonfiction books, or even within nonfiction, maybe like biographies and sort of uh, books that people generally read for entertainment. The requirements or the purpose there may not require uh, those tools, but certainly the ones that are available, I think, are quite useful. And and uh, so we can, uh, you know, what, what is over overlaying all this is sort of copyright and a, and a number of other issues uh, that, uh, like, you can't cut and paste from a Kindle, for example. Uh, and uh, it, it does control that environment and the way you use and the degree to which you use the information. Uh, but certainly, I think for highlighting and now uh, it's sort of interesting. One of the things that we were looking at in our kind of uh, reading studies is uh, this idea of uh, kind of social annotation uh, where uh, people we're doing an interesting little study right now we're developing it to see whether or not uh, what the effect of highlighting has on Peter, people's reading patterns and uh, uh, whether or not <clears throat> Uh, you know, the the pattern could be established on whether they read in the more typical way from start to finish or jumping around or whether they go immediately to the highlighted components and, and read those. Uh, if we have uh, kind of variable density highlights where uh, the more people that will highlight a particular passage becomes darker or a different color so that you can judge uh, a highlight not only that on the basis of someone else having noted it, but if 100 people have read that book and 99 of them have highlighted this passage, then uh, it may be that that's an important passage. And so we're kind of looking at the way uh, – what brought this to mind was that on the Kindle now, uh, they do keep track of who's yeah. highlighted uh, particular components or aspects yep. of the book. And they'll, uh, so you can see uh, what is uh, – people are focusing on and so uh, at least from a narrowly academic perspective that's just sort of to me that's interesting is how that would affect reading habits uh, and it's not so new I remember years ago in, in Vancouver 
Uh, there used to be, uh, not far from the university, a used bookstore called The Book Mantle. Not there any longer. And I went in to buy a book one day. I was looking for a copy of something or other. And uh, the guy who ran the place uh, came by and he says, is there something I can help you with? Because I was standing there looking through multiple copies. And I said, I'm trying to find a clean copy. And uh, he said, oh. He said, oh, oh. He says, that's surprising. He says, most of the students that, that come in are looking for books that are already highlighted. <laughs> you know, so I was quite a, the uh, – the Coles Notes version, because then they would only have to read uh, other people's highlights in order to get what they needed out of the book, which was very utilitarian. So I can see that uh, just something simple like highlights in a book can certainly uh, affect uh, reading patterns. And what we can do now, again, using digital text, is to actually leverage that for really good purposes, because uh, it may be, depending on the type of content, that uh, we can map people's task, their purpose for reading more directly onto the content by using mm-hmm. those kinds of, of things. Uh, we just need to, to find out uh, kind of good ways of doing it so that we're less dependent on uh, uh, kind of the whimsical nature of much of uh, – people's annotation and highlighting uh, efforts. (laughs) So much like the information quality I was talking about, stuff I was talking about earlier, it's the same here is that how do you establish an authority for these things? And uh, when you're dealing in a distributed environment uh, uh, where, you know, there's lots of people reading a document that really comes from the same place and they can also track who's reading it and what they're reading is that we can establish authority in that particular way. Well, at least it's an, a, an approach we can take, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of a more um, well-placed, uh, thoughtful application of crowdsourcing of, <laughs> of uh, uh, kind of kind of reading and, uh, and being able to identify in a particular object, whether it be book or journal article, if you're in a rush and you can only, uh, you know, you've got to, lots to read and then certainly in academic environments that's becoming critical is that there's new journals, more new journals coming online every year and, uh, you know, we don't read any faster than we used to. So what can you do to make that process much more efficient? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there's the part maybe that uh, people may enjoy actually is being able to to and fro with people through some kind of shared reading environment like that where they can actually have interesting discussions about what the author might have meant, uh, you know, what the interpretation would be, and people could get value that way as well. So uh, I guess it's the quantitative and the qualitative components that can be utilized in an interesting and useful fashion. But the Kindle, yeah, no, I think that, uh, uh, you know, it's... That was what was the problem with reading. A lot of the early work we did, this is going back quite a ways now, the problem we had is that we were dealing with a desktop or a laptop uh, and uh, there's just a, there's no, there's a lack of intimacy there yeah. that really affected the way people were able to utilize these reading tools. You know, that, you know when, I went, when I talked earlier on tonight uh, about our conversation about being able to reach out and touch the information with the web when it first came online, well, you can do that now. In fact, going back to the iOS design guidelines, 
a lot of those guidelines are based on people touching the information and moving and swirling it around and doing this, that, and the other thing. So there's that sort of more intimate uh, connection between the information and the, and the person. And, uh, you know, I, I think that a lot more was able uh, to be done. And if you look at the, the statistics, this will be borne out that with the advent of these mobile reading devices that the uptake on electronic digital documents books, articles, magazines, and all that really, yep. really started to, um, to take off because that's what was lacking. So in a way, we, we were dealing more uh, with something in, in, in those days. Our competitors, well, not competitors, but the things we were trying to improve over were things like Adobe Digital Editions, you know, which is very limited. And it was really uh, created for a desktop environment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now uh, we just have so much more. And I think the uh, kind of, I say, this, this greater intimacy we can now reestablish with these reading objects, much like we used to have with plain old books, paper books, is that we can, uh, you know, touch and, and uh, manipulate in different ways. And uh, that brings that closer connection that I think we lost when we were – and, and why it was never successful in a desktop environment, uh, you know, online uh, digital books, even in, in libraries, which find it much more cost-effective to, uh, of course, provide uh, e-texts mm-hmm. uh, than uh, paper texts. Uh, they, they just weren't being used as much because people found them difficult to use. Yeah. And uh, certainly I think with things like the Kindle and uh, other reading devices that, uh, you know, that was really, I think, uh, a very significant uh, development and uh, really provided a kind of an acceleration of, of acceptance of, and use and use of, uh, of electronic books and, and magazines and all those things. So, uh, yeah, no, they're a good thing. Except, like I said, with Kindle, uh, there's this kind of overlay of uh, excessive overlay of IP considerations, uh, sort of the kind of protection of uh, the content. Uh, and what that does at some point is really going to diminish the utility of those forms. So yeah. you can't cut and paste. Yeah. Uh, what else can't you do? Uh, um, you can't have the uh, – for a lot of books, you can't have the device read it to you. Like you can't have it automatically because they want to sell you the audio book, right? And they don't sure, want to have yeah, a performance especially. of it, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, you have these uh, sort of uh, capital, capitalist or market requirements sort of push push their way on top of the information – as it were, um, and we kind of know that information in order to really be um, well utilized has to be freer in that sense of having the ability to copy and paste and quote something and not just highlight it in the Kindle app, but that highlight doesn't go anywhere except maybe to be shared with other users who are also using the Kindle app, but it sort of becomes this proprietary thing and all my information is locked in here. Yeah, even in the format, uh, you know, you can't, uh, for example, read uh, ebooks, right? Ebooks from the library on a Kindle, right? Uh, or you can't read Kindle books on a 
another device. Yeah. So, I mean, it is limiting in that regard. Uh, and also, I think, um, it to go back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, it really is a consumption device. Um, there's not too much that you can use to create using a Kindle. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, but... Uh, you know, if it's going to be used uh, more in a more creative way, I think uh, there has to be a better balance between sort of the protection of the intellectual property uh, and uh, kind of the limitations that that puts on the ability of people to interesting or use that information in interesting and innovative ways. Uh, I mean, it seems kind of odd that in a way you could be reading a nonfiction, let's say a textbook even, on uh, your Kindle, but still have to take notes by hand. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, but again, horses for courses, right? So, I mean, that's their <laughs> business model and uh, and uh, it does a fine job. Uh, you know, for the price point, it does a fine job of uh, providing a nice uh, – kind of reading environment, a localized reading environment mm-hmm. for the, but, uh, yeah, but I, yeah, I'm with you on that. Cause I listen to tons of audio books, so I'm sort of with <laughs> the, the, um, yeah, the, the mine, um, I think is the first version where they put speakers in it and they were like, Hey, it can read the book to you, but it reads it to you. Like, uh, Ten-year-old uh, GPS system, so you can only listen to <laughs> right. like a paragraph before your brain explodes. So <laughs> it was yeah. the best of times. It was <laughs> yes. the worst of times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The um, yeah, uh, and uh, um, well, I'm sure there'll be uh, certainly uh, interesting developments uh, in that. In that, I mean, I mean more and more. Companies are now uh, sort of moving into that environment. Uh, certainly, publishers these days, academic publishers, they, they don't really fashion themselves as publishers anymore. They're learning systems providers, and what they're doing now is, you know, the content is there, but if their their systems are so flexible, they can bundle that content in any number of different ways, and uh, and I think that's. <clears throat> kind of a real uh, good thing that's occurring, uh, even though, you, you, you know, you may be only bundling what they own, but, uh, you know, certainly for uh, educational purposes, uh, there's a lot of flexibility there in terms of not only what you offer students, uh, but also what they can do with it when they, mm-hmm. when they, when they get the content. Uh, so, uh, un- Unfortunately or otherwise, we, we, we live within a particular economy that uh, requires that those things be paid attention to and that we um, – I just feel in many ways the that's dominated, kind of that uh, more corporate perspective is dominated. and that In a way, it's really held back uh, a lot of advances that would be quite useful to people generally and certainly in my neck of the woods uh, for students and, and teachers. Uh, and uh, even in terms of learning management systems that we we have, uh, they're not uh, they're, they're fairly they're, they're that they're learning management systems. They're not learning systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think a lot could be done in terms of 
you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of uh, thinking about what these information objects are so they can be manipulated and used in, in many, many different ways um, and not uh, uh, kind of just be specifically purpose-built like the Kindle. That's the connection. Well, um, you just, you made me think um, a couple of the people who uh, who try to publish things a little more openly, um, Cory Doctorow and even uh, um, fictional writer uh, Charles Strauss as well. Um, mm-hmm. Recently, I read, um, what is it, uh, um, something of the nerds. Um, it's a... The two of them uh, came together and wrote it together, but the book was offered free on one of their sites. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that I, I had to buy um, from a publisher. Uh, and then kind of hitting some of the points we've been discussing, um, the interesting thing was is about every fourth chapter there would be what I guess you could call an advertisement and they would be like, Hey guys, um, thanks for downloading the book. Uh, hope you're enjoying it so far. The next chapter is going to be awesome. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of people and a lot of schools out there who can't afford this book. So, um, maybe you decided not to buy and download the site, but maybe you would like to donate a book to a school. So if you just Mm -hmm. click this link right in the book, It'll take you to our website and you can find a school to sponsor and you can buy them a copy or 10 copies, whatever you want to do. Right. I, I thought that was it was the Rapture of the Nerds. That's what it was called. Rapture of the Nerds. The nerds yeah, I was just looking at uh, yeah. Charlie Strauss's web, uh, Wikipedia page. The um, Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, that's a whole area. I wish I knew more about it. Uh, kind of these altern- alternate business models. Uh, when I was doing uh, a lot of the in, – in the initial stages, a lot of the reading tool development, we worked in a system called uh, the Open Journal System. And it was uh, developed by a fellow that then uh, at that time was in the educate, Depart- uh, Faculty of Education here at UBC. And uh, he was a very – is a very well-known but certainly a strong advocate of open access – and uh, his uh, goal in developing this uh, suite of web-based uh, applications, uh, open journal systems, uh, open conference systems, and the open monographs, was uh, to make uh, more, especially university-based uh, research and, and scholarship available to the general public uh, through uh, this, this, this publication system that he had developed. Uh, so... Uh, the other side of the coin, and I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that, uh, you know, open access even doesn't mean free. Uh, it's got to be paid for somehow. Yeah. Uh, and I think we've struggled in many ways to figure out what these other ways of doing it are. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, Cory Doctorow and uh, Charlie Strauss, uh, they need to make a living too. So, uh, you know, kind of ways of thinking about uh, how they can offer what they're doing that – uh, is good for them, but also makes uh, what they're doing accessible to more people. And uh, it's interesting, you know, just like you were mentioning, uh, to look at the different ways people are trying to do that. 
you know, and I think we, in a way, we have a, at least in some sectors of the economy, a distinct lack of imagination when it comes to that. We only have to look at kind of the recording industry to kind of find out the changes that are occurring there and how slow that industry has been mm-hmm. in responding to uh, uh, to what the market's doing. And, uh, you know, I guess that's just the way of the world is that, uh, you know, the people who are doing well by the system are the least likely to be the ones that want to change the system. Uh, but... Uh, so you have all these kind of drilla movements that move up around it and kind of create yeah, these new yeah. sort of ways of thinking and they become orthodoxy at some point. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's nice about this kind of the information society we live in is that, uh, you know, people with good ideas, there's a better chance they'll be taken up. You know, there's just so many more distribution channels now and uh, so – I think there's lots of interesting things to be done on that front. So it's interesting to see what people are doing and uh, how they're, you know, balancing making a living with uh, having uh, more of these things uh, available to the general public. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that uh, Amazon and Netflix were the disruptors uh, yep. in their perspective in their respective markets, and now they're. Uh, Amazon, of of course, is always trying to grow their presence and and disrupt other markets, but they're very, very much established in their kind of original space of selling books online. And uh, Netflix, similarly, um, I think they like to still think of themselves as a startup, but in reality, they are the they are the big the big dog of subscription online streaming video services and. Uh, their difficulties in trying to acquire content from studios these days kind of reflects that fact that people are a little bit more wary of them trying to protect their own business models. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think, uh, you know, sort of an evolutionary thing, except I guess things just happen a bit more quickly these days. Uh, cause a lot of it is so techno- <laughs> yeah. technology dependent. And, uh, so the next, the next big thing might make, uh, ways of doing things, easier. And so it's hard to predict what that's going to be. I mean, just look, I think, how long has the iPhone been available? How long has the iPad been available? Look at the effect mm-hmm. those kinds of devices have had on communication and and uh, entertainment. And, you know, it's sprung up a huge industry. And, uh, you know, people go about doing things much differently than they did even 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh Gosh, I just look at the pace of change. I go back to the one, 1992, I think, is when I got, like I said, my first ISP. <laughs> uh, that's really not that long ago. And, uh, you know, things certainly have developed quickly. I guess, in a way, our ways of thinking about things sometimes don't, aren't able to keep pace. Yeah. Uh, yep. And it's, it's kind of hit or miss, in, I think, in a way, in that regard is that I'm not sure that uh, how sort of dominant ways of thinking, given the rapid change in technology, how dominant ways of thinking can exist. And if that's the case, then uh, sort of that uh, environment is much more uh, unpredictable, I guess. And uh, I... um, 
Yeah, I was just looking. Sorry, I, I, you got me on Charles Strauss's page here. And I was going to uh, ask Chris how he liked the uh, the atrocity archives. Yeah, I um, I just, I think I just realized uh, the other day that um, I am not caught up. I think there's a new laundry book coming out, or just came out, maybe that I'm not caught up. Like I don't, I haven't read the Reese's chart. Yeah, yeah, I sort of uh, put that series in hiatus. I've been urban fantasy has been my certainly as this falls well, uh, falls into. Yeah, uh, so I've been sort of making the rounds in in that genre. The uh, but uh, not not to get off topic, but I uh, no, I knew I knew you were listening to or reading <coughs> uh, his stuff. I was just kind of curious while you're on the. No, you, you're the one that pointed me to the Laundry Files series of books by him. And I'll have to say, like, um, and you pointed me to them because I think we were talking about Dresden Files at the time, but uh, another urban fantasy. But definitely Strauss's work is, um, I, it's a good day when I understand, like, 65% of what's happening in the book. Yeah. <laughs> The yeah. uh, well, I, I think in a way, kind of a, a signature of uh, this particular genre is the way. Now, I, I'm not exactly sure uh, what what you what you're what you're saying there in terms of uh, what you're not understanding. But I just find that sometimes the better series are the ones where you understand the least because the 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 world they create is so rich. And connected yeah. to our own myth, myths and mythologies, that uh, you know, it, it makes them more real, but in some ways less understandable. Because you know, again, going back to domain knowledge, you have to have sort of a nice, rich understanding of of the various <laughs> myths uh, and uh, uh, you know that exist worldwide and and what they're tapping into there, because that's sort of the elemental component that really makes all these stories interesting. I think. You know, there's this abiding interest in the in the supernatural and the mythological that these books certainly tap into. And I, uh, for me, it's um, for me, I, I really enjoy the books. And then I guess when I say like 65 percent of it, for me, I'm thinking because the environment is so rich that. Uh, what you said makes sense, but also I feel like there's some inside jokes because he is so intelligent. Like there's perhaps a famous mathematician's name he used and I have no idea who that person oh, is. I see. Or, yes. So I feel like a... there's a considerable amount going over my head as a fiction reader. Then I'm like, so it, it's still a learning experience for me. It makes me think, oh, I wonder if I should look that up. But yeah, that's where I'm, I'm coming from is you have the idea that there's this like whole other, you know, it's fiction. You're reading about a fictional place and time. And then on top of that, like, did he just create this out of no, nothing or is this based on something in our world and I'm missing the joke? So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, it kind of brings to mind, I, I kind of, uh, as I, you know, as I said, I listen to lots of audiobooks and. I just kind of three levels of listening that uh, I I have uh, that I've noticed. Uh, there there are those uh, stories where if I miss something, I'll rewind and make sure that I, I hear it. Okay, I got to hear everything, uh, what's going on, and know exactly what's going on. There's those stories where I just need to stay in touch with the kind of the major story arc, 
so that it could keep the plot going in a sensible way, but you don't need to have every detail. And I think that's at that level. You don't really need to know uh, everything in order to enjoy the story and have it still be entertaining. And then there's the ones that is like uh, background noise. You know, I just want uh, <laughs> I just want to hear, listen to somebody talking. You know, it's uh, there's something so basically human about that. I sometimes think, you know, I like listening to the stories uh, when I'm uh, when I get into bed at night. You know, because and I think, well, it's just like a kid. You know, I don't want to be told a story, and so I'm not. Uh, I think that there's something very soothing about. Uh, they're, they're, these audiobooks are so much they're accessible at so many different points is I guess my point but that uh, you certainly uh, but I know what you mean uh, I think sometimes uh, that uh, because especially with audiobooks it's not so easy to go back and reread things especially that if you aren't uh, uh, twigging on to an inside joke or some oblique uh, reference to something else uh, then uh you know, you probably will miss it. And depending on your dedication and involvement in that story, whatever the level you're at, you might just say, yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> he can have his joke. Uh, let's move on. Uh, the one series I'm listening to now, uh, they're actually referenced the Harry Dresden series within this story itself. So now there's even, uh, you know, kind of references to other hmm. stories in the genre by different authors. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I'm quite, uh, quite happy in, in my, uh, urban fantasy world lately. That's mostly what I've been listening to. I've, I've actually stretched out because I, even though I said that was kind of scary, I, you know, I read, uh, the rapture of the nerds, but I, I also read like, uh, Strauss's, uh, Saturn's children, which was kind of interesting. Um, and I didn't realize that was a part of a series. So now I'm, I think that's probably the next book I will jump into is the second one from that. Um, but, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite uh, fascinating to um, get into some of these. What I what I find really interesting is um, uh, one of the books I recently read because I got it on some sort of uh, awesome fiction bundle deal online or something. Um, was I read Neuromancer and mm-hmm. uh, that was like basically cyberpunk and boy, like I felt again, like I wasn't getting a lot of it because like I probably should have read this when the book came out and it would have meant a lot more to me. Right. But it was, it was still a great read. I mean, this is pre-internet and here he is talking about something similar. And so it was a good read, but like the whole cyberpunk aspect i was like hmm, i might i will probably try to read another book in this genre but i don't know maybe it's a time thing which was kind of funny because recently a friend of mine um on one of the various social networks was saying um how he didn't really enjoy um Catcher in the Rye, which I used to love as a, a young man, and he just thought it was like a really stupid book. <laughs> I was like, what? How can you say that? It's a classic. But mm-hmm. then after I read Neuromancer, I was like, oh, I can see where like there's probably some events happening in there that are just seem ridiculous to someone who doesn't even remember like Big Macs coming in styrofoam containers. So, Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, I mean, they were they – were, 
dominant books at the time because they really uh, were reflecting the kind of the culture of the time. And uh, those markers sort of uh, diminish over the years. And what they were talking about that was so pioneering and and uh, path-breaking is, as you said, is kind of just the way things are nowadays. So it's interesting to to try to put yourself back what it might have been like when those books were written. Uh, and I think if you can realize what the state of technology and uh, especially information technology was at the time, you really do get an appreciation of, of uh, uh, what they were seeing and where they were going. I guess it would be interesting to look at maybe other books that were written around that time that maybe weren't as accurate about the way things were going. <laughs> you know, maybe at some point, not to take anything away here, but uh, that uh, they, they just got it right. And other people whose books were really good didn't get it right. And so there wasn't mm-hmm. the lasting value there. Um, I mean, one guy I really liked that probably goes back that far, almost that far as Neil Stevenson. And, uh, you know, he kind of his early book, Snow Crash, was uh, in that genre. And uh, he's certainly, to watch him, I mean, I'm a huge fan of his and the variety of uh, works that he's created. I mean, he started with something that was essentially of that genre and then his probably one of, at least one of, uh, certainly volume-wise, a major work was uh, historical. Uh, The... The Baroque Cycle uh, was kind of a three-volume story about, uh, well, of the two major stories, the parallel stories. Uh, one was about the founding of the Royal Society in, in, mm. in London uh, and about what it was like at those times. So uh, it's interesting to look at sort of the, sort of the memes that uh, follow all the way, the tropes that follow all the way through mm-hmm. uh regardless of whether it's cyberpunk or historical fiction uh, and uh, or something more contemporary. I mean, Neil Stevenson went, uh, wrote another book called Cryptonomicon, which was a remarkable book mm-hmm. uh, about uh, sort of the founding of uh, uh, during the Second World War. Uh, not the founding, but the creation of these technologies for uh, uh, creating... Um, uh, encryption, sorry, encryption for yep. uh, various messages that were being sent during the war, and how uh, that uh, was that story again. Parallel stories that occurred in that book, uh, where uh, a sort of interesting uh, parallel story uh, involving the relatives of the people that were in the uh, thread or subplot for the Second World War were uh, the main players. Uh, so anyway, I go on about Neil Stevenson, kind of a bit boring, I suppose, <laughs> but uh, I really like his stuff. And then he wrote uh, Anathem, which was a, a parallel world a story about a society that uh, was uh, built around uh, uh, almost a, a medieval sort of uh, – distribution of uh, wealth and, and work uh, in society and uh, uh, but that occurred in a modern time in an earth-like mm. planet uh, someplace so uh, he's got quite an imagination that fellow um, 
Yeah, but uh, you're right. I think that uh, no matter the, the the character, not the character of the book, the the, the meaning of the book in a larger way changes. Whereas yeah. it was path or pioneering at the time is now evidence of uh, sort of a breakthrough book in a particular. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's era. a book that kind of represents a trajectory that we were on. Absolutely. So just as uh, Ketra and the Rye captured uh, coming of age at that particular time and maybe some of the universal uh, themes that go along with that, that uh, maybe Neuromancer, that's what it does now. You know, if you look at it too closely, maybe it's not as good as it was then. But if you look at it at a certain level... Uh, it certainly uh, holds up in terms of the themes that it was addressing. So anyway, that's my my English 100 version of <laughs> interpretation of that. Yeah, I've got yeah. a I've got a coworker that uh, uh, absolutely loves uh, Anathem. He uh, has told me on more than one occasion that he has the audio book of it and and listens to it uh, probably at least twice a year and, and get something new out of it every time he listens to it still. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think in some ways more of that book than some of his other works, uh, the, uh, and to make a comment on the audiobook itself, it's a particularly good narrator that, uh, mm. that uh, really brings that material, uh, to life. And, uh, so, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed that one. Absolutely. And, uh, not to, uh, I think to Neil Stevenson, uh, I guess the last uh, major novel he had anyway was something called Reemdi. Uh Looks like Read Me, but it's actually, <laughs> and uh, takes place uh, a large part up in this neck of the woods, uh, kind of Washington, southern British Columbia. Hmm. And, oh. uh, I think he lives in Seattle. And uh, or environs, so he's probably quite familiar with this this area. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's uh, it's all interesting on what you end up reading. Uh, I didn't think at my age I'd be reading books about monster hunters, but <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there's if you go back to uh, to Dracula and uh, the original Dracula and uh, Van Helsink and kind of that captures something that's uh, universal. Not sure what it is, but uh, all these kinds of books, uh, especially the urban fantasy ones that are uh, kind of based on uh, similar themes, seem to have some universal, not necessarily universal, but ongoing appeal. Uh, mm -hmm. Particular storylines are maybe brought up to date, but again, maybe that's... <coughs> uh, what uh, these iconic books really tap into are the universal themes, but or maybe what they do is identify a new way, th way of thinking about these universal themes. Maybe that's what. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's what I get out of it, or I enjoy is sort of that new way to present it. Um, and that's probably why I'm drawn to science fiction and some fantasies, just because of the way they present it. Right? Like, yeah. The yeah, enjoyment of watching like a Twilight Zone episode because it's presented so uniquely rather than um, Lassie and someone's <laughs> trapped in a well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I've been listening to uh, quite a bit of uh, going back and listening to and reading uh, both um, 
uh, Isaac Asimov and uh, uh, and Heinlein. And if you go especially with Heinlein, some of his stuff is classed as science fiction, but is really mostly about uh, kind of societal concerns of the time and relationships and so on. So it really, uh, even though that he's been kind of viewed uh, in a particular way as being quite conservative and uh, so on, I think uh, the books are interesting in that uh, uh, he was able to kind of grab on to what those universal themes were at that particular time. It's just that he had a particular slant on them. Uh, I just uh, reread the entire robot series by Asimov and realized how good they were. By the way, it was the same narrator as uh, Anathem. Yeah, as Anathem, yeah. <laughs> yeah, William, William DeFries. And uh, and really, it's, it's quite remarkable that uh, those really are classic science fiction books because mm-hmm. they do uh, hold up, because they do tap into the fears, insecurities, and all those things that we feel about uh, as humans. So, but it is, I, I don't know, I can't figure out what it is about the monster hunters, <laughs> what appeal there is there, but... Uh, there's something. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't dove into uh, audio fiction yet. Um, Paul Paul actually got me into listening to some audio books as he had uh, discussed a few that he really enjoyed, and then um, so I've been listening to like nonfiction ones where it's usually the a biography or that person or someone in their family discussing mm-hmm. it. So. But yeah. I, I haven't tried the fictional ones. I'm enjoying still reading those. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I guess uh, the one thing going back to the Kindle, uh, you know, having uh, you know, Amazon owning audible.com, which is the largest purveyor of audiobooks, uh, I think actually that model works quite well from a consumer point of view uh, for the nonfiction books. Uh, because one thing I uh, know about or like about audiobooks uh, for nonfiction is uh, not every part of a nonfiction book may be of interest. Because, you know, there's no kind of dominant narrative there. Mm-hmm. So there may be parts that are more or less interesting to you. And uh, the way I usually listen to the nonfiction ones is I'll give them a try on auto- audio and I'll listen to them in the car or walking around. Uh, and uh, I'll get whatever there is to be got out of it. But if it's really good, I'll go buy the book because then I can reread stuff more easily. And uh, sure, yeah. you know, and I know what particular parts I want to focus on. So it gets back to that triage function that I was talking about earlier. Is that you know we can look at these dynamics and the way that people utilize information in a particular way in many different formats. And uh, so what the audio books do for me is give me a they give me access to the material. Uh, I don't need to be setting time aside to do it because I can listen to audiobooks whenever I'm moving from A to B or laying in bed in the, at night going to sleep or, uh, like I say, in the car or wherever it happens to be. So even though it's a slower way of communicating, uh, you can only read it about 200 words a minute. Most people can read it three or 400 words, if not faster. Um, it's slow and steady wins the race because, you know, I listen to it at least uh, 20 minutes in the morning on the drive in, 20 minutes at night on the way home. There's 40 minutes of reading that I wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And uh, so it does give you the advantage of 
uh, at least with the nonfiction, I guess, is uh, specking it out. So even if you're not paying attention, uh, you'll twig to those parts that, and kind of listen more attentively to the parts that you're most interested in. Uh, a bit harder in that to do with books because, uh, you know, it's not a running dialogue the whole time. You have to be more active. Yeah, and you feel the need maybe to stop at chapters sometimes or yeah. stop at a position where you can stop rather than just mid-sentence like yeah. you could with an audiobook. Sure, absolutely. You don't certainly pay as much attention to uh, those uh, kind of bookmarks. Uh, the other business model, I suppose, uh, on that topic is, uh, I'm not sure if you've tried Scribd, uh, which uh, is an ebook service. You kind of pay, a, it's kind of a model it's developing. Mm. You pay nine bucks a month, it's like Netflix. It's the Netflix of uh, ebooks and audiobooks now. Is you pay eight or nine bucks a month and you have access to their entire catalog. And they've just uh, actually, within the last six months, started uh, offering audiobooks. And they have about 30,000 audiobooks. And so uh, for Less than ten bucks a month, you can listen to your hearts. Well, limited by their catalog. I mean, it's like sure, Netflix yeah. in the sense that uh, there's a lot of stuff they don't have. But there's no excuse, I guess, uh, for the price of three coffees, three uh, Starbucks coffees a month, that you can have access to all that material. But uh, yeah, so then you can uh, you can be more wide ranging in your audio listening audio listening you can actually <laughs> could graduate from nonfiction to fiction now but at no extra cost <laughs> this is true yeah I, that's weird i i thought scribd i felt like they'd been around for a long time and they were one of those like paste bin kind of a things where you could post documents and share them but <laughs> yeah that's exactly what it is and uh, they have been around a while uh, in terms of uh, the e-documents, so e-books, and like you say, you can post your PowerPoint slides there or something okay. you've written. Uh, but now they have, uh, in the last while, they've, they're into the audiobook business as well. Interesting. Which they have, by the way, uh, the entire uh, BBC Audio Go series of uh, James Bond novels read by well-known British actors. Wow. Oh, that's cool. So, uh, yeah. So if you watch Downton Abbey, Hugh Bonneville is reading uh, Goldfinger. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there's lots of, I think there's lots of good things that come out of, you know, this greater access via these different distribution networks that we now have. And I think the interesting, if you want to go back to Amazon is, you know, that whole Hachette uh, fiasco that was going on there uh, where they were taking uh, – not selling Hachette books. Mm-hmm. If you recall about six months ago, there was a big to-do uh, where uh, Amazon was trying to force a particular uh, buying model from the, from the publishers that the publishers weren't uh, all that interested in. And there was a bit of a war that was going on there. And uh, the holding company that uh, had a lot uh, or owned a lot of these publishing companies, individual publishing companies, uh, was actually struck from Amazon's list. Uh, 
And I guess it's <laughs> just recently that they've sort of made up. But uh, yeah, so I was getting on our comments earlier about where it becomes big business. Right. Uh, you yeah. can see Clash of the Titans starting there. And, uh, and that these big companies are oftentimes slow to know how to react to uh, activities in other part of that uh, part of the economy. At least mm-hmm. they're in a local part of the economy. Um, so there's all these uh, kind of new ventures coming out. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, we used to talk about the digital divide and sort of the inequitable access or the variable access that people had to these offerings. Okay, based on. <clears throat> Uh, whether or not they had the resources, but mm-hmm. it seems to be it's getting, uh, you know, and this is good, I think, uh, that um, at least in large, I mean, we could always find uh, better ways of doing things, but it seems in many ways that there there is more access um, uh, at a, a, a reduced cost, okay? Yeah, so I think our, like I think like you were saying earlier, the, the these new devices, these new form factors, but on top of that, the fact that they are so much cheaper. Um, you have a lot of even places where um, physical ISPs that bring connections into your homes are not things that exist, but everybody's walking around now in um, very rural parts of uh, of various countries, both third world and first world. Um, but they have cellular access because that much infrastructure is able to be built. Yep. Yeah, so. many parts of the world, that's all they have. Mm-hmm. And if you go to a place uh, like countries in Africa, uh, the economy, uh, at least communication-wide, is really built around uh, cell, cell technology. And uh, uh, people living there often have two or three cell phones and they use them for different I mean, that's their way of doing bank transfers and all kinds of stuff or sending money to their mother or, you know, they have uh, sort of shops where this can all be done via phone. Mm -hmm. And so they'll Mm -hmm. have multiple phones for uh, different jobs that they've got. Yeah, even uh, even Facebook, I remember reading that Facebook's whole idea of like, you know, because numbers are so important in our economy. So Facebook's whole idea in to get into Africa was they started selling SIM cards in Africa. So that had like a Facebook-like app built into the phone. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, uh, I just upgraded to the iPhone 6 and uh, I love my old iPhone 4S. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you talk about multiple phones, uh, phones, and you know, for different purposes. I uh, now can use my old 4S as an iPod. But when I travel to the U.S., I can get a, a SIM card uh, uh, from this company called Rome that essentially gives mm-hmm. me a U.S. number, and I don't have to worry about excessive roaming charges that may be incurred depending on what kind of plan you have. So it's getting to the point now where. You know, this used to be a prized possession was my iPhone when I first bought it. Now it's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just kind of using it for a special purpose. So, <laughs> you know, but uh, all these companies are, I mean, the infrastructure is developing to support these different activities where mm-hmm. before maybe it just wasn't economically feasible. Uh, and now I hear this company, Rome, which is a local Richmond, B.C. company, has been bought out by... Mm. Uh, I don't know, Bell or somebody like that. <laughs> sure. That's just the way of the world. 
Yeah. That much is true. Yep. Well, um, we've been chatting for quite a while. I should probably call it an evening and let you get home from the office. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was a lot of fun. And I, um, I hope uh, that it was worth your time. And uh, I certainly enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, no, we had, I had a good time. It was uh, a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, thanks so much again for joining us because uh, um, I learned a lot. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it too. And these are a lot of the, these are a lot of the topics that we end up talking about with, uh, with a number of guests. Uh, but everybody has a, a new perspective on it. And it's interesting to get somebody who has kind of the academic perspective on it as well. So uh, thank you for making the time and joining us tonight. You're you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks to everyone who uh, decided to listen live. And uh, if you are listening live, happy holidays, uh, whatever you celebrate. <laughs> um, and I guess uh, here at Montreal Sus, uh, we will see you, or rather, you will. We will be back in your ear holes back in uh, in January <laughs> or February. Um, so, and also if you've missed part of this, uh, live show or any episode this year, you know, just go to montrealsauce.com, click the feed button and subscribe or use the iTunes button. Um, and you should check out, uh, filmfrown.com as well because, um, it's just fun and silly. So, and yes. I also need to, before I sign off for 2014 and end the season, I do, do need to thank uh, my friend Paul. Thanks a lot for all your help with the, this podcast and uh, the new gear and everything. Yeah, no problem. No problem. It's a ton of fun. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining me as we wrap up season two of Montreal Sauce and, uh, <laughs> and look forward to 2015 and season three. Sweet. All right. Well, good night, everyone. Um, and thanks again to all of our guests, Rick, and everyone who joined us this year, like Sally, Dan, Justin, Andy, Christian, Jacob, Dina, Colette, Seth, David, Tony, Jonah. Look, I got them all. Boom. Wow. Nice. <laughs> well done. <laughs> all right. Good night, everyone. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rick. <laughs>